Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. One of the things you'll notice in this passage and throughout the book of Hebrews is how many times the writer says, let us. The writer of Hebrews never considered that Christianity was an individual pursuit apart from a fellowship and an accountability with a local church. Christianity was never to be lived in isolation. It was to be lived in community. And over and over again, he says, let us, let us. In other words, you stimulate, you encourage, you spur one another on because you're going to need it one day. Have you ever had times when you wanted to quit? Just thought, you know, I've had about all I want to take. You ever been times when you've been discouraged, when you've doubted, when you've feared, when you've wondered, is it really worth it to serve God? Now, you know, God may have spoken to you in your time alone with him, but I guarantee you something else happened. Somebody came alongside you and said an appropriate word at a timely moment, and that got you over the hump. Somebody patted you on the back. Somebody sent you a prayer card. Somebody ministered to you. Somebody said something to you. Somebody propped you up. Somebody came by your house. Somebody listened to you, pour out your heart, and prayed for you in that moment. And in that moment, you realized how important it was to have Christian friends. One of the things that the writer of Hebrews is doing in this passage is he's teaching us how to, how to stir up our faith and what it means to walk by faith and to live by faith and to, to have a faith life. And all through this chapter, he mentions this subject, and in the, he's been talking about the sufficiency of Christ, but I want you to notice that chart there that's in your notes because I want you to see a word that stands out a lot, and you, you ought to go back and look at it for yourself. Uh, at another time, but the word confidence, the word confidence. Look in chapter 4. You see the two boxes there on your notes. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now, why do we have confidence? Because we've got a great high priest. Our confidence is not in the fact that we're somebody. It's that we have a great high priest who has already passed through the heavens, who is over the house of God. In verse 14, the last part, let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 16 of chapter 4, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 10, verse 19. Since therefore we have confidence, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Now what is he trying to tell us? Well, remember the warnings that he's given us. We have a possibility, if we don't stay firm in our faith, of drifting away, of sliding away, of becoming hard of hearing spiritually, and ultimately of falling away or walking away from our faith. And so he's reminding us in the midst of these warnings, he's giving us exhortations that tell us that we need to hold fast to some things, that we need to 
keep our confidence up, that we need to keep our chin up. And so let's look at the first thing tonight. First of all, faith is essential to life itself. And the first thing we want to see under that is faith is only as strong as its object. Chapter 10 and verse 23. Faith is only as strong as its object. It is not the size of your faith that matters. It is the object of your faith. You can have great faith and walk on thin ice and fall through it. Or you can have weak faith and walk through thick ice and never see a crack in the ice. It is all in what you put your faith in. It is the faith as a grain of mustard seed. God didn't say you've got to work up this mammoth amount of faith. You just got to put what faith you've got in a mammoth God, in a big God. Now, everyone operates in the realm of faith somehow. Some people put their faith in the stock market. Boy, aren't they having a great time. I see people panicking and going nuts and everybody's, you know what? God was in control of my investments when they were making money and he's in control of them when they're not. He's still God. He's still sufficient. He knows all of my needs. He said he would supply them according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And so his riches in Christ Jesus are a whole lot more important for me to put my faith in that than it is for me to put my faith in what somebody on the stock market might do. Now, I hope the stock market does well. Don't misunderstand me. I hope it does well, but my faith is not there because that's fickle. It's temporal. It doesn't last. Some people put their faith in their personal abilities, and then something happens to them, and they lose their health, and all of a sudden they're not able to do anything, and their life is shattered because circumstances have changed. Some people put their faith in technology. Some people put their faith in human reasoning. But he says... He who promised is faithful. So who should we put our faith in? The one who made the promises to us. Because the one who made the promises is faithful, and the promises he made can be taken to the bank. So how do I do that? How, how do I make Jesus the object of my faith? What is there for me to stand on? Well, two things. First of all, you have the promises of God. You have the promises of God. Chapter 8 verses 8 through 12, and chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. When you say, well, I, I don't know what to put my faith in. Put your faith in the promises of God. The writer of Hebrews says he has written his law on our hearts. The psalmist said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. God wants the word of God to be in our hearts because in our hearts, God strengthens, God uses it, God reminds us of it, and he tells us, now you can take that to the bank. The promises of God. Not only that, but we are to have faith in, in the priesthood of Christ. The priesthood of Christ, chapter 10, verses 20 through 22. The priesthood of Christ is one of the most dominant themes in this book. The priesthood of Christ relates to the fact that our high priest is even right now presenting our needs before the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes people ask me to pray for them, and if I don't write it down, I forget it. Do you ever do that? Or am I the only one? Okay, good. I'm glad there's somebody else. And sometimes somebody says, boy, I need you to pray for me, and if I don't write it down or if I don't pray for them right then, I may forget it. But I've got a high priest who never forgets anything that needs to be prayed about. Not a thing. 
He is the great high priest, and I draw near in confidence, not because I'm somebody, but because I know somebody. And you see, to not live by faith and to not put our faith in Jesus Christ is an insult to him and an insult to his priesthood and to the Scriptures. Now, the second thing, the faith is not only just as strong as its object, but faith is the key to understanding. Look, if you would, at verse 3 of chapter 11. Faith is the key to understanding. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. Now, that is a significant statement. He says, by faith, we understand. Most of us have been taught to say, if I understand, I can have faith. But that's not faith. If you can understand it, you don't need faith. You know, uh, Vance Havner said, you know, I don't know how a brown cow eats green grass and gives white milk, but I don't quit drinking it. And I don't know how when I walk in my house and I turn a switch on, the light comes on. I don't know how to explain electricity. I don't understand electricity. I know that if I'm standing in water and I touch a plug, that there's power there. More than I want. I can remember one time when my dad had an ice cream uh, cooler in his drugstore, and he said, son, I think the cooler has come unplugged. Reach down there and plug it in. And I had to reach behind the cooler down a wall, and I was laying on top of this cooler that had sweated because it was so cold on the inside and it was so hot on the outside, and I'm laying in this water, and I'm reaching down to this plug, and my hand slipped, and I touched the metal part of the plug, and I want you to understand, I knew that there was power in that socket because I laid there kind of going, <laughs> I think my dad knocked me off with a broom. I don't remember right, but he, he needed to get a broom after me some other times too. But uh, faith, faith, he says, by faith we understand. I'll tell you, one of the... One of the things I've learned in being around godly people is that they understand God so much more than other people because they believe God so much more. They believe His promises. I would a whole lot rather have a person who's had to trust God on a day-to-day -day basis tell me about what it means to walk with God than to have a theologian who's got it all figured out. By faith, we understand you know, I, I listen to people sometimes and I see people sometimes and I, I, talk, I remember Manly Beasley and I, I talk to him and say, how in the world did he figure that out by faith? How did, he, how did he come to understand that? By faith, because God knew that he could trust that truth with somebody that trusted him. By faith we understand. Number three, the faithful find favor with God. Verse six, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, let's see what he says. He says, first of all, we have to believe that he is. He's God. There's no rivals. There's nothing else, no one else to put our faith in. We believe that he has our best interest in mind. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, people want God to reward them and want God to bless them. I'll tell you how God will bless you when you seek Him. God rewards those who seek Him. He, faith is following a predetermined plan of God. How do we walk by faith? 
by seeking him. And when I seek him, I find him. Now look at verse 38 of chapter 10. Go back and look at verse 38 of chapter 10. He's quoting there the book of Habakkuk. It's also quoted in the book of Romans. He says in verse 38, But my righteous one shall live by faith. Now look at, now we know the first part of that verse, but look at the second part of the verse. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It is displeasing to God when his people do not operate in the realm of faith when they try to operate according to their own reasoning and their own minds, it displeases God. But he says, my righteous ones shall live, shall walk by faith. Now let's talk about the second point. By faith we draw near to God. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, there's one of those let us again, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God. On what basis? We have a great high priest. Now, how do we do that? Verse 22. Look at what he does. He gives us the process of how we draw near to God. First of all, he says, with a sincere heart, an unmixed heart, a pure heart, no mixed motives, no other agenda. With an unmixed heart, he, he's written his laws on our heart. And you see, when I draw near to God with a sincere heart, it says that my inner life is driving my outward behavior that what's going on on the inside is affecting what's going on on the outside. Secondly, he says, not only with a sincere heart, but in full assurance of faith. Now, that can be translated conviction or certainty of faith. With full conviction or full certainty of faith, and it describes someone who has clear-headed confidence and stability. When I draw near to God in full assurance of faith, I have a clear-headed confidence and stability. How in the world can I have that? Because I've got great circumstances? No. I have that because I'm trusting in the finished work of Christ. My confidence, my clear-headedness, is because I know that God has already completed everything that I needed for my salvation and my sanctification through Jesus Christ. So I come before him with full assurance of faith that God has my best interest in mind and he wants what's best for me. Thirdly, it is in confidence. Now this word confidence is a rare word in Greek. It, it has to do with a free and open expression. It's probably the best way. I, the, the word confidence here is a free and open expression or a free and open conduct. I express or act or conduct myself freely because God has given me a sincere heart in full assurance of faith and in confidence. Again, boldness in the finished work of Christ. Now, this word comes from two words meaning all word. Then that's strange. The word confidence would literally translate all word. Here's what it means in vernacular that we would understand. 
when all's been said and done, you can have confidence in what God says. When all has been said and done, you can have confidence in what God says. The Latin comes from two words, meaning with faith. So all word means when all said and done, you know the truth, you can have confidence in what God says. The Latin means with faith, and that means that I put my faith that what God has said is true. So I can come to God in confidence. You see, if I'm trying to work it up, it doesn't work. You know, if I'm trying to roll this rock up a hill and trying to say, you know, if I can just try a little harder, if I can do a little more, maybe I can operate in the realm of faith, that doesn't work. It is having confidence in the fact that God's already got the rock over the hill. God's already finished the work. God's already accomplished the task. And so I stand on his finished work. So we draw near to God by faith. By faith we hold to our hope, verse 23. By faith we hold to our hope. Let us hold is the same verb, if you just want to write in the margin, used in chapter 3 and verse 6 and chapter 3 and verse 14. In this verse, it's used in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing exhortation. Let us hold and keep on holding and don't ever stop holding. Don't ever quit. Don't ever think you've arrived. Don't ever think you've accomplished your goal and you can coast. Let us keep on holding. And he says without wavering literally means that which does not bend or that which has stability. How do I hold fast to this hope? Because I don't waver, I don't bend, I have stability. How do I do that? Finish the work of Christ. If it's dependent on if I'm strong enough, if I'm having a good enough day, if I'm feeling good about my walk with God, if it depends on my emotions and my feelings, at some point I'll give out. But it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. So I am to continually hold on to what God has told me, what God has said about me. Number four, by faith we encourage one another, verses 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider. It's used 14 times in the New Testament. Let us consider. 14 times in the New Testament. Here's what it means. Take notice. Watch for this. Make sure you do this. Pay attention to this. Let us consider how to stimulate one another. Now, why is that a big deal in the life of faith? Because this is a tough world. And it beats us up. Some of us live in such tough circumstances that it's just kind of hard to get from week to week, from day to day, much less from Sunday to Sunday. And we need to consider ways, how can I encourage someone? How can I minister to someone? Why, why do you think we're doing this uh, thing this summer through Sunday school? Try to stimulate and encourage one another. You know that more people drop out of church and never come back in the summer than any other time of the year. They just get out of the habit. They go on vacations. They get lazy. School starts back. They get busy, and they never get back in it. You know why we need to stimulate one another to good works, why we need to do what we're being asked to do? It's because it may help somebody stay in the game a little longer. 
They may stay focused a little longer. They may walk through it a little longer. Now, Hebrews 6.10 says, tells us that, that uh, they did this in ministering to the saints. Now, in chapter 10, he says, keep it up. One of the great studies you ought to do is a study on the one another's of Scripture. Let me just give you a few. Love one another. Give preference to one another. Be devoted to one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Serve one another. Be kind to one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Live at peace with one another. Be hospitable to one another. Now that takes a while, doesn't it? I mean, if we just did that, think of the difference it would make. If Let's just think of the difference it would make if we just loved one another. There's a frightening thought. Oh, Lord, I... Lord, if it's up to me, I can't love them. No, you can't. That's why he says, let us. That's why you need somebody stand alongside you and say, yes, you can, because Jesus has saved you and changed you and made you different, and you can love them. Oh, great, now you brought the Lord into it. Greet one another. Give preference to one another. I'm going through the door first. I'm not interested in giving preference to anybody else. It's, you know, it's going to be me or nobody. And yet he says, give preference to one another. Build up one another. Encourage one another. Accept one another. Serve one another. Be kind to one another. Well, they're not very kind to me. Well, turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Kill them with kindness. I have people that don't come to church here anymore and sometimes I see them out in public and some of them just flat out rude. You know, first thing I ask is I wonder if they're saved because Jesus said by their fruits you'll know them and if they're rude, I figure that's a fruit. A rotten one, but it's a fruit. And so I go out of my way, you know. Hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, I mean, it's just like, Lord, come now. <laughs> There's that preacher. You know, just get away. But you know what? Lost people are nice. Why can't God's people be that way? I mean, if lost people... Listen, I've had people... I've had people that I knew were as lost as a ball in tall weeds that were nicer to me than some believers have been. I can be nice to anybody. You know why? Because my sin sent Jesus to the cross just as much as theirs. I'm not any better than they are in the eyes of God. I'm not any more special than they are in the eyes of God. I don't deserve any more favor in the eyes of God than they do. They're sinners saved by grace. They've got their problems. I've got mine. Let's just all be friendly because we're all going to need each other one day. All these one another's are given to us. He says, let us stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what this summer's about. To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know, somebody asked this morning, said, I mean, I thought Survivor was about kicking people out. <laughs> well, this one, we're just trying to survive in this old world. So we're trying to see all we can keep in the tribe, all we can keep in the family, all that we can encourage in every way that we can. So let me make three suggestions in how to do that. How do we stimulate one another? 
He says, not forsaking our own assembling together. Number one, go to church and Bible study. That's not hard, is it? Of course, I know I'm preaching to the choir right now. With a Sunday night crowd, I don't need to tell you that, but, you know, it's real easy to say, well, I'll just skip out. He says, not forsaking our own assembling together. By the way, that's the same word that Jesus used when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, folks, listen very carefully. When you think that being a part of the body of Christ is an option, you're forsaking an assembly which God uses the same word to say, that's like when I had Jesus on the cross and he said, why have you forsaken me? That's a pretty serious word. Forsaken's not, oh, well, we missed you. Hope you'll be back next week. It's a serious word because when we drop out of church, when we drop out of being involved in accountability, when we drop out of the body, we are committing a crime against Christ. You see, encouragement does not come in isolation. You need the body to find encouragement. Turn back to chapter 3 and verse 13. Chapter 3 and verse 13. The writer says, but encourage one another day after day. Not just during a campaign. Not just when we're emphasizing care or contacts. Encourage one another day after day. Let any one of you, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why should we encourage each other? Why should we exhort one another? Why should we pat each other on the back? Why should we give preference? Why should we build up and accept and admonish because of the deceitfulness of sin? You know what one of the things the devil says to people when they miss? They don't care about you. They don't care about you. But you see, the writer did not say, let the pastor and the staff do this. He said, let us, the body, do this. Let us all figure out ways to encourage one another and to stimulate one another and to assemble together with one another. Folks, listen. When you start making excuses for missing, you start setting yourself up to be deceived. When it becomes easy to miss, I'm not talking about legalism here. I'm talking about a biblical principle and a command of the Word of God to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And when the body is assembled, all the body needs to be there. When you go get in your car, you don't leave your arm at home. Do you? I mean, you all kind of go, you know, well, my leg doesn't feel like going today. I think I'll just take it off and I'll just go without it. I'll come back and get it another time. Now, that's silly. But sometimes we think if somebody's not here, oh, well. It's not an oh, well. Because that may be the first crack that Satan gets in that person's life where they ultimately become deceived by sin, fall into sin, and fall out of church, and one day we all wake up and look around and go, have you seen so-and-so lately? Hadn't seen them in months. Wonder what happened to them. And they're gone, and they're away from God because of the deceitfulness of sin. 
So don't give up on church. Now, let me just say something here that I have a strong conviction about. And I mean it's strong. Not because I work in a church, not because I work for a church, but I have a strong conviction here. I don't think you can love Jesus and not love his church. I'm going to be very honest with you. Some of our student ministry staff has a hard time getting some kids to come to church because they've been told by Christians that you don't have to go to church. You just come to my Bible study or you come to my event or you do my thing. I want to tell you something, folks. That's heresy from hell. That is a heresy from hell. One of the battles I fought in Kansas City was we had a lot of parachurch youth groups and I kept asking their leaders, okay, so what are they going to do when they get out of high school? Because they can't be in your organization when they're 35 years old. What are they going to do when they get out of high school? Who's going to hold them accountable? Who's going to encourage them? Who's going to exhort them? Who's going to challenge them? Who's going to hold them to what they've said they're going to do? Now, folks, listen. I dare anybody in this country to prove to me on the basis of the authority of the Word of God that you can be a Christian and not be faithful to the local church. You can't find it. It's not there. And anybody that teaches that or promotes that may be sincere, but they're stupid when it comes to Scripture. And don't follow people and don't listen to people and don't support things that tell you you can follow Jesus, but you don't have to follow the church. And then they say, well, the church is imperfect. Well, guess what? The person that told you that's imperfect. I didn't realize that Jesus vacated the throne to let somebody in Albany or in Americas or anywhere else take that place. There is no other place that Jesus died for than the church. It is his bride, it is bought by his blood, and it is his body. And when you do not support the church, you offend the bride of Christ, you hurt the body of Christ, and you trample on the blood of Christ. Now, I know that's hard. I know some people don't want to hear that. Well, you don't have an argument with me, friends. You've got an argument with the Word of God. There's an old southern spiritual that says, everybody treats me mean, but as long as i got Jesus, I don't need anybody else. Nice song, poor theology. There's a country song that says, Jesus and me, we got our own thing going. Poor theology. You better take what you understand about the church because Jesus died for the church. I love this quote by Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson says, I dare you to look the Lord in the eye and tell him he was wasting his breath and your time with all this emphasis on the church. Just try it. I dare you to look Jesus in the eye and tell him he was wasting his time with all this emphasis on the church. I want to tell you something, folks. The church gets a lot of bad raps but it's still the best thing going. And it is what will be standing, and by the way, the church is what Jesus is going to take to heaven with him. 
You know, he's not going to take little pockets here and little pockets over there. He's got one body and one bride bought by his blood, and that's what he's going to take to heaven with him. And I feel sorry for people that buy the lie of the enemy because you know why? If I'm not involved in the church, I don't have anybody that holds me to the wall. I can go out and do my own thing, live my life, act like I want to act, do what I want to do, say what I want to do, and there's nobody to ever call you into account and say, hey, pal, let me tell you something. You're way out of line. I want to tell you, people that will not associate and be involved with a local church have one reason. They don't want to be under authority. And God says everybody needs to be under authority. Nobody free wills in the kingdom. No appendage of the body operates without the head. So, if I've made my point, shake your head this way. Okay. You don't have an argument with me. You've got an argument with the Lord. You cannot read the epistles of Paul and say that there was anything other than churches meeting together. Jesus did not write seven letters to individuals. He wrote seven letters to seven churches. So go to church, be a part of the church, support the church. Secondly, learn to practice the presence of God. Learn to practice the presence of God. That means it's not just about coming to church, it's about walking with God on a daily basis. Now, I may offend somebody on this one, but that's okay. You'll get over it sooner or later. I think if somebody is physically able, I hear what I said, physically able to come to church and doesn't do it, they don't have a walk with God. Because if you're walking with God, you're going to love the things that God loves. And I think anybody that is, I'm not talking about people that cannot physically get out and come. I'm talking about people that are physically able. They can go to the grocery store. They can go to the drugstore. They can go out and do everything else. But then they say, well, you know, it's just, it's just hard for me to go to church. I want to tell you something, folks. I'd have somebody else go to the grocery store, and I'd make sure I made it to church. Somebody else can buy bread and milk, but nobody else can hear the Word of God for you. Practice the presence of God. Number three, this one seems like a strange one. Remember the good old days. Chapter 10 and verse 32, the former days. Now, he's not talking there about living in the past. He's talking there about remembering those times when God proved himself faithful. Remembering those times when God came through for you. Remembering those times when you had that prayer answered, when you had that need met. When God did something on your behalf and you knew it was an intervention from God for you. That's why you ought to write it down. That's why you ought to remember it. That's why you ought to tell it because you need to remember when God was faithful because you're going to get in a situation you're going to wonder, man, does God even know what I'm going through? And you look back over the past and you see with 20-20 vision looking back, boy, God was faithful then. God was good then. And you know why you get involved in a church? Because somebody in your class 
When you're sitting there down on yourself saying, oh, you know, nobody cares, nobody loves me, nobody's done anything for me, well, I'm just having so many problems, I'm not sure God cares, I'm not sure God knows, I'm not sure God wants to be a part of what's going on in my life, somebody's going to sit by you in class and go, come on. Don't you remember last year when you were praising God for doing all this stuff in your life? Have you forgotten your testimony from last year? Uh, yeah, sure have. We have short memories when it comes to the blessings of God. One of the reasons we need to stimulate one another is we need to remember the good old days. And in times of testing and in times of trial, we need to be around other people who can say, look, I've seen God work through you before. I've seen God bless you before. I've seen God meet needs in your life before. I've seen God answer prayers. I've heard out of your own lips that God's done something for you. Now, don't give up now. And we stimulate one another to faith and to good deeds. Folks, listen. I'm a type A personality, and I'm pretty independent. I mean, I can function pretty well. You know, I, I, I don't need a lot of people, and I don't need, you know, that's just my makeup. My, my, my dad drove me and made me to understand, you can just do it, son. Just, just, you know, you can live. You don't have to have everybody come along telling you as the greatest sermon since the Apostle Paul. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't have to have that kind of stuff, but I will tell you, I need the fellowship of the body. I, I don't need affirmation of people to tell me that I'm good or bad or indifferent in ministry, but I tell you what I need. I need to be around other people. Now, my nature is to not do that. My nature is to isolate myself. That's my nature. But I need to be around other people because you know what? I feel better about my God when I'm around God's people. And my faith is encouraged when I'm around God's people. And I'm blessed when I'm around God's people. And all of a sudden, you know, God happens to put me around somebody that's got worse problems than I do, and I don't feel so bad for myself anymore. Or God puts me in a situation with somebody where they've been where I am. And they can say to me, hey, God's true to his word. God's faithful. I've told you this before, but... I would say it again because I would have never considered my parents to be spiritual giants by what I believe, whatever that term means. But you know what they did know how to do? They did know how to take advantage of some opportunities. My mother went in the hospital one day she went into surgery for what she thought was going to be a minor surgery. She came out of that surgery with a massive double mastectomy. I can't tell you how many times in her church she made a trip to the hospital to visit a lady who was laying in a bed in fear. And she said, God will see you through this. I want to tell you something, folks. There's not a male minister in the world that can do for a woman in that situation what another woman who's been through it can do for them. I mean, I can go in and I can pray and I can ask God to heal and I can, be, I can hand out tracts. 
But you see, I don't understand because I've not had to be there. I've watched my mother go through that. And so there's something that happens when the body functions right. If you're out there in isolation, nobody's going to know what you're going through. Nobody's going to know your hurts. Nobody's going to know your needs. Nobody's going to know what you're feeling. And you're not going to have anybody to encourage you. And the devil will whisper in your ear, See, doesn't work. Church doesn't matter. I want to tell you something. You don't know it, but God knows it, and God sees it. But I want to, I want to tell you that nine times out of ten, when I get a prayer card, it is at a timely moment. God prompts somebody to write me a card to say they're praying for me, and it comes at a timely moment. And you know, some of you have had that same experience. When at some point in your life you needed an encouragement and somebody in this church or some member of the body of Christ reached out of their comfort zone and took their time to say, I want to stimulate you to love and to good deeds. Now they may not have said it that way, but that's exactly what they were doing. And so we minister to people because we remember the times when people ministered to us. What a great opportunity. I mean, there's no glee club, there's no alumni organization in the world that can do that for you. If I went to my class reunion, I'd just have to pick up all the drunks. I mean, I don't get any encouragement from the people I went to school with. But you know, I've got people all across this country and churches spread out all across this country. I've got family everywhere. Wonderful people that have learned what it means to be connected with one another. This doesn't mean we have to slobber all over each other and go, oh, I love you so much. Every time we see each other. But you know, it's the pat on the shoulder. It's the arm around the shoulder. It's the taking the hand. It's the smile that may just get the person next to you or on the row across from you through this next week. Stimulate one another to faith, to good works. Thank you for joining us for Path to Truth. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send us your name and address to Path to Truth. 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. If you're requesting a videotape of the service, please enclose $10 with your order. If you would like an audio tape of the pastor's message, enclose $3 with your order. Remember to include your name and complete address along with your telephone number and be sure to ask for the tape number that you see on the screen. We would enjoy hearing from you by mail or by phone. And we hope you'll join us next week at this time for Path to Truth from Sherwood Baptist Church. Store.